Hey everyone, this is Gavin Hammer from Sendable, and today I'm joined by Ben Ford from Commando Developments. Thanks for joining us, Ben. No worries, Gavin. Great to be here. Absolutely. It's really, really great to have you on the, on the podcast this week. Um, I know that you have an interesting background. Uh, so you've been involved in the Royal Marines, kind of used that knowledge to help inform companies with their operational expertise. So do you want to maybe share some background with the listeners just as to where you've come from and where, you, where you're planning to go next? Yeah, sure. Love to. So, yeah, so um, I joined the Royal Marines in, uh, in 2000 um, when, when the world was considerably quieter than it is now. And I was in until 2004. And while I was in, you know, did lots of operational tours. And on the last operational tour I did, which was uh, to Iraq, I decided I probably needed some skills for, you know, my life post-Marine. So I, I bought a couple of books, uh, got them flown out to the ship I was on, which was HMS Ocean, and um, taught myself the basics of Python programming. So that when I left in, 2000, this was in 2003, so that, that when I left in 2004, I sort of had a bit of a skill to fall back on. Um, so after I left, I, I worked in telecoms for a little while, um, you know, continually sort of working a bit more of my scripting and Python knowledge into, into my jobs until I got my sort of first full-time job uh, as a Django developer in 2008. And, you know, at that point, you know, I'm now a professional software developer and I thought, well, you know, the Marines was something fun that I did when I was in my early 20s. And, you know, now I'm doing something different. And, uh, you know, that, that's how it continued for a few years until I started to uh, build my own teams. So, yeah, for the longest time, I, I, uh, I thought that the, the Marines was something I did then. And, you know, now I'm a software developer. And that was true for a few years until I moved into startups and started to build my own teams. And then, you know, all of the operational little tricks that I'd learned about what makes people work well together, um, how you pick priorities, how you train people, all of that kind of stuff. I, I, it started to raise some recollections in my mind about how we'd done things well in the Marines. So fast forward till today, and you know, I've noticed that businesses need that even more. You know, the world is um, it becoming more exponential in terms of how quickly things evolve and move. And you really need the ability in today's world to be able to react quickly and you know, take opportunities as they come up. So that's why I've launched Commando Development to try and sort of teach what I know to um, fast-moving software companies. Okay, so, I mean, obviously you've come from the military, you're going into uh, sort of tech companies and trying to help them. Uh, what are some of the um, sort of the, the tips and tricks you can share from the military that you think would, would relate to sort of tech startups? Sure, okay. So I think that there's a sort of meta principle behind all of it, which I'll come on to. Um, but just, you know, bear in mind when I talk about these things, I'm, I'm really talking in terms of, balance and managing um you know differing priorities so you know one of one of the kind of core phrases that i heard a few years ago from uh, from jocko willink which really really struck home was um discipline equals freedom right and it sounds sounds like one of these kind of uh, you know phrases that doesn't really make any sense because it's sort of you know discipline's the opposite of freedom in some ways but actually what, what it really means is that the the structure that you put in place enables your progress in a certain direction, right? If you put the wrong kind of structure in place compared to what your goals are, you, you will end up sort of tripping over your feet and getting in your own way. So as an example, um, a company that I was in a few years ago where a fast moving R&D type startup 
research and development, but they were managing all of their all their software, you know, how the work was managed with, you know, very stodgy old kind of project management office processes, which meant that, you know, they had loads and loads of structure, but, you know, essentially they couldn't get anything done on any kind of sensible timeframes for a research and development company because they were using the wrong process. Um, so that, that's one example. Um, and, and the meta kind of principle that, that I fall back on all the time is that of the OODA loop, which was um, you know, designed by a fighter pilot in the 1950s, but so, so applicable to today's world. So uh, can you go into more detail about the OODA loop? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the OODA loop is a thinking tool that came from uh, a, a guy called Boyd, uh, Colonel Boyd. Uh, so he, he was a fighter pilot in the 1950s. And the thing that sort of started in thinking, thinking about this was trying to figure out why, you know, certain aircraft and certain, you know, weapon systems were more effective than others. Um, and what he figured out was that, that you know, and what, what he kind of evolved and came to over time was this um, kind of structure. And OODA stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. So it's a process that you go through. So you see, you see something happening in the world, then you put that into the context of, of your current reality. You decide what you're going to do about it, and then you perform an action to uh, to then change the world, and, and the loop continues. Now that looks like a very kind of um, linear, kind of cyclical process, but actually it's sort of much more fractal. So, you know, you've continually got smaller scale OODA loops uh, going on, which the the output of those feeds into sort of larger scale ones. You know, so for an example, in the software team would be, you know, how quickly you can you can release your code is based upon how quickly a developer can push and test that code. And then how quickly you release your code feeds into how quickly your company can discover new opportunities, capitalize on those opportunities and learn about the environment that they're in. So that's an an example. Okay, so how would you use that to improve operations within a company? I mean, how would you spot opportunities to make changes? Yeah, that's a great question. So so using, using this lens, so recognizing that that this this is continually happening at, at every level. You can start to kind of group areas for improvement into different into different sort of parts of the OODA loop. So, for example, you know if you're a, if you're a software platform, you know what are your metrics like? Are you are you measuring the right things? How how's your observation? You know, are you observing things that are reflective of the real world? Are you looking at vanity metrics, perhaps? You know, how well are you then taking those metrics? and being able to make real decisions about them. So this is the orientation part. It's, you know, how well are the metrics you're collecting and making inferences from uh, really changing your understanding of the world. And then, you know, the the decision part is, and then how well is that understanding then driving good decision-making, quality decisions? And then, you know, action is actually sort of fairly mechanical at that point. It's sort of the least important part of the loop, if you like. So that would be an example at a company level. And then, you know, an example of an inter-team level is, um, you know, balancing very fast delivery with quality over time. So, you know, you can you can go through your OODA loop really, really quickly on a kind of operational tempo of, of delivering change. But then you've also got the longer term kind of how are you maintaining the quality of your product over time, which is kind of like a separate um it's a separate slower OODA loop where you might want to look at it every you know, month or, or quarter or something of, you know, how are, how are our library usage um, metrics? You know, are we using stuff that's end of life? Do we need to invest any money or time in 
technical debt, you know, how, how well are we balancing kind of immediate delivery with kind of future sustainability? So those are kind of two examples where you can use the same thinking tool and the same structure of, of you know, sort of a mental model to drive decision making. So, I mean, for me personally, I've, I've obviously been running uh, Sendable now for over 10 years. I don't know what other companies look like. Um, I've kind of lost touch with what a, a well-run or a, an organization with good operations looks like. Can you like describe to me maybe some of the last um, roles you've had, maybe examples of really well-run organizations um, with really good operations? You know, I'd caveat this with there are always high points and low points in any organization. You know, if you optimize one part, you're probably going to sub-optimize another. It's just sort of the way the totally. world works. Yeah. So I think, and it also really, really depends on context, right? You, you can have an organization that is doing really, really well in the startup phase, you know, getting that MVP, you've got, you know, complete freedom to just throw things at the wall, see what sticks, and that's great. But then you, you move into the kind of, you know, scaling phase, and actually that freedom becomes a bit of an impediment because, you know, there's no kind of constraint and, you know, people are continually playing with things that aren't fully formed. But I think, you know, some, some things that I could pick out that define um, high performance for me, and let, let's say, let's, let's just sort of constrain this conversation to the kind of, you know, 20 to, to 50 people startup where, you, where you're actually looking for scale now. You know, you've, you've probably got product market fit and now it's time to kind of, you know, double down and, and get better. So in that environment, I think the thing that defines uh, good operations is uh, having proper cross-functional teams and good communication. So by that, I mean, you know, good operations is a team that owns a vertical slice from kind of inception to kind of working on the problem, to delivering it, to supporting it. And then, you know, they're, they're responsible for the whole kind of life cycle of the thing that they own. And then the team is comprised of people that can manage each element of that. So you might have, you know, a QA person in that team, back-end, front-end engineer, designer, potentially even marketing, all integrated and all kind of reacting to, you know, in, in unison to the, to the market and to the, to the lessons that you're learning versus what often happens in organizations is um, they kind of start falling foul of, uh, of Conway's law and, you know, they become siloed and the work moves to the teams rather than, than, than the teams kind of moving moving towards the work. So... What I mean by that is if you're taking a, a batch of work and you're chucking it over the wall between different teams, that's just more and more opportunity for friction and waste. Uh, whereas if you have a team that moves to the work and the team is well formed, then you know that team becomes better and better over time and, and you know you get your kind of continuous improvement. Yeah, so for me, um, obviously as a founder, one of the hardest things I've had to face is um, stopping myself from breaking things. So, you know, I like to experiment and learn and um, jump into things and, you know, try, try, try new things. How can you balance kind of being creative and innovative with all the operational restrictions that, that come along with this? Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. So, I mean, this is something that, that the military has obviously done, you know, not just, not just the Royal Marines, but every military is, is a, an organization that has to be continually improving. So I think the best way to kind of, to, to look at this is to separate the kind of execution and improvement phases. So one of the ways that the military does that is that there's always an operation and then there's always a debrief. So the operation is always set up, you know, there's always an orders process. There's always a kind of understanding of what we're trying to get to and, and, you know, what the objectives are, what the constraints are. 
And then there's the operations phase. And while you're doing it, while you're doing the operation, you're not really thinking too much about, you know, oh, what should we, what are our opportunities for improving? That all waits until the end. And at the end of the operation, you have your debrief phase. And the debrief phase is the, is the time to kind of think, okay, what went, what went well? What didn't go so well? Um, what are opportunities for improvement? You know, what should we double down on? What should we change? And then, and then that sort of rolls into the next operational phase. So you use your kind of debrief to both change your immediate kind of standard operating procedures, which is, you, you know, what you follow to actually do the job. You know, so that might be your development processes. It might be your kind of QA process. It might be your CI, uh, your continuous integration, continuous deployment. You know, if you're if you're on the marketing side or the sales side, it might be your kind of sales metrics and matching up how you know all, it's all your kind of operational flow in the execution phase. And then when you do your debrief, which is typically much shorter than the execution phase, you have the ability to then sort of reflect on on sort of bigger picture stuff. So there's a there's a great book that I always kind of recommend people read called Team of Teams. Um, and in Team of Teams, they call these two phases uh, empowered execution and shared consciousness. So, so like you, I'm a programmer, um, and obviously when you're coding, uh, you can tell the computer exactly what to do. Uh, there's no sort of variables besides you know, the, the, the constraints of, that, of the computer. But with, with people, especially in the military, are there any techniques or tactics to help motivate them to kind of get things done or tackle big, big projects or initiatives? What sort of things can we take away from the military that can help drive sort of motivations in people? I mean, this is one area where I feel that maybe you know, translating too directly from the military is, is perhaps maybe almost detrimental. And I'll, I'll dig into why I think that is. So the military takes, you know, essentially an unformed input. So they take, you know, basically bodies off the street and they turn them into a very specific kind of instrument or, or, or you know, a specific kind of product. You know, and that, that takes, you know, the onboarding period of, of the military is a very, very long time, right? It's, uh, you know, eight to nine months to get someone as a sort of basically trained soldier, well, a Marine, uh, some some units are slightly less. And, and what you're actually doing in that period of, of onboarding is you, you're actually sort of in some ways driving out diversity, right? You're, you're teaching everyone a very standard way of doing things and you're making sure that everyone that comes out of that phase, out of that pipeline has the same kind of characteristics, maybe the same outlook on life. And that's great when you're kind of, you know, you know roughly the shape of the problem that you're going to be into. You know that you need people that can do X and Y and Z, but I don't think it's a particularly good fit for you know today's kind of dynamic startup scale-up environment. In those environments, you actually want people with diversity of experience, diversity of opinion, and you know people are actually motivated perhaps more in today's world by learning and progression and development. So it's a difficult one. It's kind of you know, intrinsic motivation is definitely important in both areas. But this is one example where the military is just sort of ever so slightly different structure-wise that maybe it doesn't translate quite as uh, as cleanly as we might like. That's interesting. So, I mean, if you were to kind of define your ideal sort of candidate for the military, what sort of person generally fits into that mold? I don't think there's a there's an ideal candidate, actually. There's, there's, there's not an ideal kind of starting point. You know, there, there's basically... A few different attributes that will get you through there's there's determination and you know there's there's a, a basically a refusal to give up but those things aside the other aspects of, of what makes up a person are, are quite wide widespread so it's actually that it's the process of the training 
that that gets you that kind of um, homogeneous kind of unit that comes out of the other end, if you like. Mm. So obviously, people are still individuals. They all still, you know, have their own, you know, makeup and character and everything else. But you know, spending the equivalent of an M, of an MBA on a 16, 17 year old is is all designed to drive out certain amounts of variability, you know, while still recognizing that people are individuals. And obviously, you know, the business environment of, of, a, of a fast moving startup where, you know, people only stay around for maybe two to three years and they're always searching for the next kind of what can I learn? How can I improve? It's unlikely that you're going to be able to make a huge return on investment if you're spending sort of, you know, 80 to 100 grand on, on people on the way in. Mm. Whereas obviously the military can afford to do that because, you know, they've got lots and lots of money. Um, and you personally, like what's the hardest challenge you've had to overcome in your career or in the military? Probably the, the hardest thing that I've had to face and, you know, bear in mind, obviously, that people change and, you know, things that I may have found hard in the past are now, you know, perhaps not, not something that I would struggle with. I moved around a lot when I was a kid. My dad's an engineer and we lived in Africa and we lived in the Caribbean. And actually coming back to the UK at the age of like nine uh, and going to a small country school in Essex with a broad Jamaican accent, that was quite a challenge. You know, and it kind of defined my school life, you know, as a lot of, uh, as a lot of kids of, of, of my generation uh, had, you know, a lot of bullying. And, you know, I think looking back, that's probably the thing that, you know, challenge wise, you know, you just sort of crack on at the time, but actually moving forward through a lot of the, the things that uh, that experience left me with and, and trying to fix those has been quite a, an ongoing process, I guess. So, so do you think um, the fact that you were bullied has kind of made you a stronger person now as an adult? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where I've ended up. It's kind of, you know, strength is a weird thing. Like you get a lot of people that join the military, for example, and they're super, super tough, but actually, you know, the military only builds strength along a couple of dimensions. And if you go into that environment with, you know, pre-existing sort of weaknesses or, or areas that need improvement, they don't necessarily get improved. And then, you know, you go away to war or whatever, and and some of those things can start to unravel. So yeah, I mean, I think I think being bullied made me made me tougher, but it probably also made me me maybe a little bit more inclined to be uh, aloof and standoffish, which you know that that could be reviewed um, viewed as something that's that's uh, quite a negative thing that I've had to work on quite a lot. So yeah, it's all swings around about balance and everything, I suppose. And uh, being in the military, were, were there any occasions where you feared, you know, for, the, for your safety or to get to a point where you were at in, in danger or anything like that? Or was it? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I went on, on operations, like I said, I, I did an operational tour of Northern Ireland, which, you know, wasn't like the Northern Ireland tours of the 70s, but, you know, still there's a bit of potential there. Uh, I went to Iraq in 2003 and I did a tour of Sierra Leone as well. Um, so, you know, all of those had potential and actually sort of one of the reasons why I left the military actually was you you're into situations like that and you know while while I was in Iraq a, a good friend of mine died uh, in the early early hours of the war in a helicopter crash and you know you get people who get into an environment like that and can switch on another kind of level of kind of performance or focus or whatnot um, and I found that actually you know there was one instance where we were in the desert in, in Saudi preparing for the the assault and there was a, a scud alert came in and, you know, we'd been told for weeks, oh, you know, this, this is, you know, if they hit us, they're probably going to hit us with chemical weapons and whatnot. And I just didn't take it seriously. And, you know, I didn't take it seriously because I'd sort of made my own 
assessment of how likely that was and the fact that they'd get absolutely obliterated if they did. But in reality, that that was stupid, right? It, if you're in a military environment and there's something coming in that you need to react to, you should just react to it. So that I was already kind of thinking that maybe the military wasn't the place for me long term, but that kind of my own sort of reaction to to a, to a situation that I should have taken a lot more seriously kind of pushed me a bit further down the route of saying, well, look, you know, maybe this isn't the place for me if I can't sort of take this basic stuff seriously and, and you know, treat it with the gravity it deserves, then perhaps I should move on and find something that's a bit more, a bit more suited to having an open mind and making your own decisions. Um, is there anything that you know now that you wish you could have told your 20-year-old self, looking back? Lots and lots. I mean, one of, one of the things that, that I've learned from, you know, having kids and from being married and, and you know, relating to, to those new people in my life is that, I, you know, I went through a lot of my life with, with quite a lack of empathy. You know, I would sort of treat things in a very logical way. And, you know, I guess in my early 20s, this is, you know, my, my early, early 20s before I'd even joined the Marines, I was kind of pretty directionless. So, yeah, I think I would, I would tell my, my early 20s self to just pay a bit more attention to people and their feelings. And just to just to end off, uh, mm-hmm. uh, if there's one piece of advice you could give to business owners or CEOs or even COOs, wanting to grow their businesses what would it be from your perspective i think the the biggest thing i've seen and and, you know this became apparent to me i was a a breakfast um, panel which was a discussion about you know devops and software architecture and we had some some leaders there you know some tech leaders um some business leaders and the thing that really struck me at at that meeting was these sort of mid-sized companies you know been around for a while you know doing all the right things with kind of devops and increasing the speed of delivery but the biggest thing that i felt they were missing was that the flow of information was all one way so the board sets the strategy the ceo sets the you know the kind of the, the tactical roadmap for the next month there's a business plan and then it's all about just executing on that business plan and i feel like in today's world that attempt to kind of linearize the whole process means that you're probably missing a lot of opportunities for for, for sort of optionality and, and upside that comes from that. So, you know, the idea of optionality comes from um, the book Anti-Fragile, which is when, when you're in a very, very volatile world, which is what we're increasingly moving into, it's the organism or organization that not only is um, resistant to that chaos, but the one that can thrive from it. So I think today's world, where you where you just sort of you know command and control and tell everyone what to do and you know you just sort of expect them to jump and do it well you know in in a in a software environment especially things move so fast that you really have to be open to to getting input from your kind of the people at the cold face the people at the teeth of the organization because that's where your ideas are going to come from ultimately right it's the myth of the great leader who's had 20 years of experience well you know, I think 20 years of experience is probably, you know, 20 years of yesterday's experience nowadays, increasingly. Yeah, I guess from our perspective, we, we don't have any investors or anything. So for us, the, I guess the, the main source of information or the truth comes from our customers. Yeah. So we, we obviously value those people that are more customer facing more than anyone else because the insight they have is super valuable. Um, and that's what informs our product teams and our roadmap and our decision making. But um, yeah, it's probably and, different than bigger companies, I can imagine. 
yeah i mean you, you couldn't operate any other way in, in in the world of social media right because that literally does that probably changes even faster than technology <laughs> yeah exactly uh scary fast yeah so ben yeah just thanks for joining us today and uh, obviously sharing your insights into the military and how that can help organizations where can people keep up with you online and follow your journey so i'm uh, commando dev uh, on twitter uh, my website is commando.dev if you want to shoot me an email uh, you know anything that i've spoken about sort of touches a nerve and you might want a second pair of eyes on something i'm ben at commando.dev cool awesome thank you so much ben for joining us today and i uh, will hopefully chat to you again soon absolute pleasure thanks a lot <laughs>